Hi everyone, Drew Pro here, host of the Broken Brain Podcast. And on this week's episode, we have my dear friend, Dina Margolin, talking to us about how to raise resilient, mindful kids. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast, where we dive deep into the topics of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, biohacking, mindfulness, and functional medicine with the goal of helping you understand how your brain is not broken. I'm your host, Drew Perot, and each week my team and I bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. This week's guest is my friend, marriage and family therapist and mindfulness teacher, Dina Margolin. Dina is a family therapist based in Los Angeles who works primarily with children and families. Dina is trained in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, which means she helps others explore how the mind, brain, and relationships come together to shape who we become and how we can harness the potential of neuroplasticity, the mind's incredible ability to change and grow throughout our lifespan. In working with children, Dina has cultivated a unique approach to child therapy that blends mindfulness, neuroscience, art, and play. Through games, activities, and reflective exercises, Dina helps kids discover their natural strengths and build new tools for looking inside, making sense of what they're experiencing and feeling, and internalizing new ways to approach challenges and stress. Basically, she helps kids become more resilient. Dina also worked at the Mindsight Institute as the associate director with Dr. Dan Siegel, who's been on the podcast before, and his wife, Caroline Welch. They run the center, and she also trained at the Center for Mindful Living in Los Angeles and is working on some really great projects with Dr. Dan Siegel, to be continued, and we'll have you back on the podcast when those projects are ready. Dina Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. We've been talking about doing this for a while. I'm super fascinated with your work. And to set the stage for our listeners, why do families seek you out for help with their children and their relationship with their children? So when they come to my office, typically there's some sort of stress happening, either within the child, and you see that through different behaviors, acting out or being sad and withdrawn or difficulty managing anxiety or depression symptoms. And another way that they come to my office is maybe there's stress in the family system itself. So that might be stress that's going on at home, around the child, or stress happening in the parent-child relationship where they're bumping into lots of issues and hard moments together. And every child, every person is gonna go through some level of, of stressors in their life. But that, that uh, stress is on a spectrum. And a good way to understand the work that you do is to talk about that spectrum and first look at the extreme end of that spectrum, which we would call, let's say, traumas. I know there's two types of traumas and I want you to break it down. We'll get there in a second. But first, let's understand more severe traumas and how that fits into the development of a child and also their life as an adult. So I'd love to start off with first explaining this concept of ACEs and the ACEs study and what our listeners can take away from that. We did our Broken Brain docuseries, uh, Broken Brain 2, which you were part of. And one of the things that we tapped you to do is to help our audience explain this idea of the ACEs study and how it's important to understand how trauma has an impact on their life and brain health. So could you talk about ACEs for a second? Yeah, ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. 
So this is a questionnaire that can be used to assess how much trauma someone has gone through in their life. So the traumas on this questionnaire include questions about abuse, neglect, or life-threatening situations that someone's gone through. And and what are some of the takeaways that we can understand from the work that was done in the ACEs uh, and the link that they found based on that quiz score? Because you end up with a score after taking the quiz. Right. So what they found was that people who had higher ACEs scores or more traumas that they've gone through before 18 years old actually have lower lifespans and more probability of getting sick later in life, which is a very scary finding, partly because when you're a child, you don't choose to go through these things a lot of the time. They just kind of happen. So to sit there and say, oh my gosh, I have a high ACEs score. Am I going to die early? That's kind of frightening for most people. Yeah, there's been a ton of research and showing how uh, even individuals who have a high ACEs score are more likely to uh, develop uh, uh, chronic diseases like diabetes. And so just to really make that link practical. So one of the questions on the ACEs study when I looked into it is, did you grow up with an abusive parent, right? Did you grow up with an alcoholic parent? And what what they're finding is that in, in a way, these experiences, imagine you have a parent who's an alcoholic, being there with them, you know, you don't feel safe, you don't feel secure, and every day could be a little bit different. You, your body and your nervous system is on is on edge in a way, right? You're hyper-reactive, and that hyper-reactivity is is based on the fact that your body just doesn't know if is it going to be safe or is it going to be okay. Uh, what are some of the other takeaways from the ACEs study and how it relates to like big T trauma? Or, or maybe even another way I could say is like, what are some of the factors that are happening inside the brain that these traumas have an impact on? So when trauma happens, especially in early life, there are a few areas of our brain that become impacted negatively. So one of those is your prefrontal cortex. This is the area that's right behind your forehead that's all about thinking and reflecting. Executive function. Yeah, exactly. Controlling your body, especially when we're talking about kids, that's a big one. So that can become impacted. Another area is your hippocampus, which is your memory system becomes impacted. And then lastly, your corpus callosum, which connects the right and left side of your brain so that they can work in balance, essentially. All these different parts from thinking logically, linearly, and using language, which is more of a left side function, and the right side, which is more about being in your body with emotions and perception. I mean, this is an extreme example, but sometimes, you know, when I was younger and I would watch like the news or people would talk about like a serial killer or somebody who's done a lot of violent crime and they look into their past, a lot of those individuals were severely abused. Or if they look at sometimes sexual predators, seeing that they often had really challenging events when they were a child. So all these things have a lasting impact, even though the event was maybe 30, 40, 20 years ago, it's still having an impact on the person's brain throughout their life. Well, that's the idea of intergenerational trauma that gets passed down from generation to generation because of abuse, because of neglect. If you think of it that way, 
your experiences, your relationships early in life, including traumas that might be big T traumas, uh, life-threatening situations that you don't have control over, car accidents, um, major disasters. Disasters, exactly. Um, So that shapes your nervous system because we're wired to survive. So when scary things happen, we remember. We may not remember consciously because part of what happens in traumas is we release cortisol. This is a stress hormone that's designed to help us survive. So as my mentor Dan Siegel notes, there are the four F's of survival, which are to fight, to get aggressive, kick, yell, scream, try to be big and fight for your life. To flee, to run away, hide, try to escape a danger. To freeze, where you're so overwhelmed, you're almost paralyzed. You can't move, you can't talk, you're not making decisions. Think of a deer in headlights. Or to faint, which helps you by making you seem dead. But also, if you're in a painful situation that you can't escape, Fainting helps you not experience this pain that you can't get out of. So instead, you shut down. And it also helps you by having you lay flat so you don't bleed out as quickly due to gravity. Or play dead and hope that the animal or other thing is not uh, is just going to stop messing with you because it doesn't see that you're a threat anymore. Exactly. And so that's what happens during trauma is cortisol gets released so that we can activate our brainstem area, which is the lower part of your brain that helps you survive in a danger situation and make it out of there. But at the same time, something else that happens in trauma is cortisol can block the conscious encoding of memories in your hippocampus. That means you may not be aware of it, but these memories are getting stored in your brain and in your nervous system. So later in life, even when that trauma is not happening anymore, it's done, it's over, any smell, sight, noise, whatever it might be, a cue that that trauma might be happening again, even though it's not, can trigger the whole survival response again. What I love about the landscape that's happening now is that we're talking a lot more about trauma in society than ever before. And it's unfortunate because it's coming up in a few major conversations. There's the Black Lives Matter movement and putting attention on how, uh, especially people of color, uh, African-Americans are being treated by the police. And uh, there's also the the Me Too movement and talking about traumas and behavior uh, between men and women and, and just people in society in general. So it's unfortunate that through these events, which have been happening for a long time, that that's why we're talking about it, but we've needed to talk about it for such a long time because this trauma is having a lasting impact and it's affecting the health of our society. So on the spectrum of trauma, that's big T. That's big T, big events, uh, uh, major situations in life that you described before. Take us to the other side of the spectrum, which is little T trauma. What's little T trauma and why is it relevant um, to this conversation? So little t trauma are overwhelming experiences that you're not sure how to cope with well. They stress you out to the point where your brainstem, that survival system, may become activated even though you're not in true danger. This actually is a major part of the work that I do with kids. 
I help them get- Primarily the primary reason that parents seek you out is they're probably working on that side of the spectrum. Yeah. So this is a big part of what goes on in my practice. I help children learn how to look inside, understand who they are at this moment, how they're adapting to certain situations, and then help them build new tools to work through life. At the same time, this has so much to do with the family environment because children are adapting as best they can to what's going on at home. Ultimately, they want to feel cared for, they want to feel safe, and they want to learn how to soothe themselves or comfort themselves during hard times. And really another conversation that's happening right now nationally is this topic of resilience, how to raise resilient kids. How even if you're listening to this conversation, I think this is important, even if you don't have kids, there's parts in this conversation that are applicable to you because the path to resilience, resilience is based on the idea, and I would love you to expand on this, is that life is going to happen, stress is going to happen, and sometimes stress is a good thing in our lives. It's not always a bad thing. Now, within that, the question is, we can't change that factor in life often. You know, stress is going to happen. As parents, we could probably set up a little bit more of a protective environment and develop habits and tools and skill sets to make our kids feel a little bit more safe. And we're going to be talking about that a little later in the podcast. But really, how do we teach kids to be resilient? And the path to resiliency, I'm saying this, I'm not the expert you are, so please correct me if I'm wrong, is is self-soothing, is learning how to self-soothe is the path to resiliency. Is that accurate? And feel free to say no and correct me. Is that how do we think of how do we think of that? It's that and there's more to it. Yes. So of course. So resilience, in my view, is not getting rid of stress. Life is full of stressors. And sometimes we don't have a choice. They just happen. Stressful moments. So this is about developing abilities and tools to work through those stressful moments as best you can. Almost like weathering the storm. Because if we don't, then we develop sort of mechanisms or behavior. And anybody who's sitting here listening, think about a time where you were gearing up to have a difficult conversation and you felt like a major pit in your stomach. Or think about a time where something was off at work and you wanted to speak up, but you prevented yourself from speaking up because you didn't feel safe or other things like that. All these ways that we handle situations in difficult circumstances as adults, they start by the environment that we set up for kids. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why it's so important because again, if you have kids or you don't have kids or you're just thinking about this, what are the behavior mechanisms that you have as an adult? Or if you do have kids, what behavior mechanisms will they have eventually as adults if they don't learn how to process feelings properly and work with um, a resiliency and self-soothing. So part of this, I would like to make this like super practical, is part of this is you working with kids and helping them process. Let's say if you have a, a kid that's on some spectrum of anxiety that you're working with, is you help them understand and process big feelings. So tell us what are big feelings and how do you work with kids in helping them work through, understand and process big feelings? Yeah, so big feelings are part of stress. It's related to stress. Ultimately, what I'm helping kids do is look inside and recognize when they feel stressed. All of us as parents, just a human in this world, a child, 
we have different sensitivities to different stressors. So think of it as this window or this amount of stress that you're able to tolerate well with your coping tools that you have now that are constructive. But once you hit that level where it becomes too stressful and you're no longer able to regulate it, what happens is our brainstem, that danger survival part of our brain might kick into gear. And in that moment, you're no longer able to access the upper part of your brain that we were talking about, your prefrontal cortex, which helps you think, reflect, share what's going on with someone, control your body. We don't have access to that part. And there's actually a really good reason that the two of those parts can't go on at the same time. Because if you could think while you're in danger, here's what it would look like. Oh, wow, there's a bear running at me. Uh, What am I going to do? I could try to run away. Oh, no, no, he's running pretty fast. I could try to fight it. Uh, Anything around to help me? I tell this to my kids and then I look at them and I say, what would happen? You get eaten. (laughs) You'd be eaten. You wouldn't survive if you could think and have your survival system running at the same time. That's why when that survival system is activated, we can't connect with others. We can't eat. We don't sleep. Right. This is what stress does. Now, some stress is good. Like you said, it kicks you into gear. But when we hit that threshold where we shift into survival mode type stress, We only want that to be activated in a time of true danger. So part of my job is to help kids recognize when that stress system has become activated. And make the difference between true danger and not. Because as a child and your brain is just forming, you don't know. You don't know the world. You don't know the landscape. And you sometimes see this with parents who are like scolding their kids and their kids just completely shut down. Yeah. Right. They're like their cup has been filled up to the degree. The stressors are there. And now they can't even think or, you know, it's always funny when parents are like, look me in the eye or like explain like, you know, it's almost like brute force parenting because we think we just need to whip our kids into into shape. So let's piggyback off of that and what you were saying. How do you help these kids do that? How do you help these kids understand the difference uh, between what is true danger and and what what isn't? First of all, we explicitly start to explore it together in the safety of our relationship in therapy and the room. And when I say safety, I mean, there's no judgment. We're not calling any part of their experience good or bad or right or wrong, which is actually a huge part of the parent-child relationship. Often there's kind of this, what I call a double dysregulation situation that happens where the child's already having a hard time with something, whether it's cutting something the way that they want or sharing with a friend. So they're already having a hard time. But then there's this other part that happens when they have a quote unquote bad reaction and someone is watching that, the shame that can come up from that almost makes them spiral even more. So we'll get into shame in a little bit because it has a huge role in the way that we move through the world. But to answer your question, you know, there's really three main pillars that I think about. When I work to help a child build up these resilient qualities, 
I think of it as the three SCs of building security. Security is is this thing that we internalize. It's our ability to take risks, to know that if we fail, it's okay, it's a learning experience, and to know that I can trust others and rely on them when I'm having a hard time, when I need to be comforted or soothed, or when I need help with something. Kids need a lot of help with things. Totally. Right? So the three SCs are feeling seen and cared for as one of them. What that means is looking inside and recognizing what's happening. This is the idea of big feelings. Sometimes there are intense things happening and your feelings are actually really tied to your body. That's why we call them feelings. There's something you feel. Thoughts tend to arise in words or images more naturally, but feelings are a little bit more complex and really tied to our body sensations. And, and as children, if I could just jump in, yeah. they don't have the same ability to, because their mind is still forming, as adults often, adults of course still have feelings too, but they think a little bit maybe more in terms of words and other stuff, and they have the tools and the vocabulary and the language. Kids don't have access to those same tools. So they're often left more with the feelings that are there and not exactly having the words to match up with what the feelings are. Right, exactly. And words are really important because the way you speak to your child becomes their inner voice. So words are crucial. I use words to guide my children's attention inwards so that they can build awareness around what's happening, around what's happening in their body, the thoughts that are running through their mind, the feelings that come up. And feelings are also really related to needs. So we have big feelings, the intense ones, like feeling scared or overwhelmed or uh, anger is, can be a really big one. And by the way, under anger, there's usually a sadness, a fear, or a hurt, a mm -hmm. pain that's happening. So we want to be able to see that within our children and show them that we see what's happening. Because when we bring our attention to their inside world, they bring their attention to their inside world. Mm. Think of it almost as you want to help them build a compass for the rest of life. Rather than being told what to do by you as the parent or other people, the more you can slow it down and help them feel seen, that I see you're having a hard time and it matters to me the more they'll be able to do that. And what we know is that neurons that fire together will wire together. So the more you direct their attention inwards, the more those neurons fire and the stronger that tool becomes for the rest of their life. So important. You know, it reminds me of a podcast that we had earlier in the year with um, my new friend, Eddie Stern yoga teacher and he wrote a book on yoga and the science of the brain and one of the things that he mentioned inside of there was that it's so crazy to think that we teach kids how to tie their shoe but we don't teach them about their brain or how to calm down or how to do these other things and part of his work is that he's teaching meditation in schools what you just expect a kid to know how to do it on their own and you're not giving them the tools and the ability it's crazy you know you wouldn't look at a kid and say hey, without me even teaching you, figure out how to tie your shoe and then get upset at them and freak, that, freak out when they're not doing it correctly. And yet that's sort of the modern state of 
parenting is there is telling a kid what to do and then freaking out when it doesn't happen. Right. And that kind of leads us into our next SC of security, which is helping your child feel safe and contained. Now, safety means physical safety, like they're not going to be abused physically, sexually, but it also means emotional safety. This is holding space for them to actually be honest about what's happening inside. Now, if there's not safety, then of course, being honest isn't a great strategy. It gets you in trouble. It gets your parents upset with you and that feels terrible as a child. These are the people you love the very most. It's natural to be upset, but there's a difference between being upset with your child versus creating a situation that doesn't feel safe. Is there a way that you see, just like as an analogy, um, you know, I don't have kids, so, but I, I want to have kids one day and I'm super fascinated by this topic. Um, is there a way that you think in terms of modern parenting as an example that that safety is not being created, just like as an analogy or a story or something like that for the second SC? Well, when parents are having a hard time holding safe space, it's just a sign that that parent is in their own threat state, more than likely. And this comes from how they were parented, because their early life experiences of safety and emotional safety may not have been met. So naturally, they've adapted to create neurological and mental systems that have helped them adapt to that. So holding space for their child in a hard moment will, of course, be really hard. And does that mean basically like just your, your, maybe your child is having a, a tantrum and it's the equivalent of like not reacting? And, and is it the combination of like how you react and also the word choice you use? Is that part of what creates safety and what doesn't create safety? Right. So when it comes to kids, because like you noted, their language capacities are still developing and it's way behind what an adult has. So it's not only the words that you're using, but children are super sensitive to nonverbal communication. That means the way that you look at them, your facial expressions, the way your body is situated, but also the intensity of your voice or the timing of your response, fast, slow the volume, right? They are so sensitive to this. And what can happen is it can trigger their own threat state where they move past that point of it being good stress that motivates them to kick into gear, but into a place of survival response. I have a funny story, funny, relevant. I'm not sure exactly what, but I remember a really defining moment as I was a kid you know, parents are always doing their best. My parents are amazing and I so love them. Shout out to my mom, who's probably listening to the podcast. Uh, I remember one time when I was a kid and I realized like, oh, wow, the narrative that human beings and adults tell each other, tell themselves has a huge impact on how they relate to other people around them and especially their kids. So one time um, I knew my mom was frustrated about a grade that I got in a class or something like that. And I was younger and I was probably acting up and displaying bad behavior and not listening. And then the next day I was at the kitchen table and I knocked over a glass of milk 
Like I was probably doing a million different things and that sort of stuff. And my mom immediately, again, just doing the best that she could, like kind of like flipped out on me. Like, oh my gosh, you need to be more paying more attention and like just very anxious and very like rambunctious. And I said, I'm sorry. And I cleaned it up and then we moved on. And then the next day we had guests over uh, that were staying with us and my uncle was in town and he, again, was having a conversation, got really passionate. He knocked over a glass of milk. Same exact situation. And my mom looked over at him and was like, oh, don't worry. Like, you know, we'll clean it up and that sort of stuff. Same situation, but a completely different sort of narrative and response on the situation. So in one situation, a parent, again, doing their best, love you, mom, is freaking out because of what she's making the situation mean and the stress state that she's putting herself in and reacting to me. And another situation, same exact situation, just being like, oh, it's no big deal. Yeah. So when it comes to these stress states, it's almost like um, a pop quiz. Would you rather walk into class and not know that you had a pop quiz, or would you rather have had advanced warnings so that you can prepare for a hard moment and do it differently than your maybe reactive response? So when we sit and reflect as parents on what's been hard in our life or just in current day life, what situations are really triggering and tough and shift you into your survival response where you're either yelling, freaking out on your child or you're so stressed that you just are paralyzed and have no response or you find yourself having no response because you are overwhelmed with that feeling of wanting to escape. Like, I got to run out of the house. You know, those are the situations that we can pause and with a, a kind heart, start to reflect on, to embrace in an open state. That's what receptivity is. It's welcoming all these hard situations and meeting yourself with kindness. That's actually how we grow. So moving into this last piece of the SCs of creating yeah, secure. Yeah, what's the final SC? Yeah, so it's soothing and comforting. And that means when distress is happening, helping your child regulate again, both in their nervous system. So that means things like slow, deep breathing. What that does, if you think about a stress state where we're in that survival response, you're breathing hard and fast. Your muscles are really tense because running, fighting, and freezing all require tense muscles, fast heartbeat, quick breath to help you escape and move. But when you can teach your body by using your mind, which is so powerful, to breathe slowly and deeply, you give your brain the message that you're safe in this moment and it helps you regulate your entire nervous system. Similarly, Another soothing technique that's important with kids and with parents, anyone who's human, is relaxing your muscles. So there are body scans that you can do. And one way I kind of explain this to kids is imagine that you had a flashlight. You start at the top of your head and you shine that flashlight onto your head. And as we move it down, you let your eyes relax, you let your mouth relax, and we move it down into your shoulders. With every out breath, you let your shoulders drop, 
and feel relaxed. Moving your flashlight down into your stomach areas throughout your whole body, teaching them that on every outbreath, it's an opportunity to relax that part of your body. What ends up happening is you realize that you can monitor, you can watch what's happening inside of you, and your feelings, your thoughts, your body, and then you can actually change it. There's actionable steps and tools that can be used to help you shift how the energy is flowing through you. So that's the idea of comforting. And when kids are little, they don't know how to do it. So when you as a parent can show up in a way that helps them soothe and comfort themselves when they're distressed, what ends up happening in their brain, in their nervous system, and in their mind is that they realize how to soothe themselves. The more you help them do it, the more those neural networks fire and wire together to become stronger and more accessible in day-to-day life. So then without you, they'll start to build those tools when they're at school or just out in the world to be able to regulate themselves through a hard moment. They know that I can just slow down my breathing, take a moment for myself, I can pause, recollect, and then I can go back into the world. And I like to think of this, and you know, you and I have had coffee so many times in the morning, catching up, chatting about life and this sort of thing. And I was sharing with you originally, like one of the first times that we met um, and had coffee, that this is all so amazing because it's part of the evolution of the understanding of the brain. You know, 20 years ago, maybe even 15, definitely 50 years ago, the understanding on modern day parenting and even the school system was it's all primarily discipline. If a child acts up, it's encouraged for somebody to hit them. I mean, you had schools 50 years ago that had paddles. You got sent to the principal's office meant not you just get a stern warning. He actually got the paddle. She actually got the paddle and like whipped you in the butt. And then so much research came out that said, going back to your idea of like neurons that fire together, wire together, you're now teaching another human being that if you want something and somebody's not doing it, it's okay to hit them to get them to do it. And there's studies out there that show that kids who are beaten more as children are more likely to use that as an adult in their own relationships. And now the modern day equivalent of that is, is that if through brute force, even though it's not physical force, we have a child who's maybe having some sort of tantrum or situation, if we don't teach them some version of self-soothing, and instead through our words and often our actions of like, go in the corner and go in timeout. We're essentially saying, suppress your feelings. You're not doing what I want. And the way that you handle situations in life when people aren't doing what you want is you use brute force and you try to manipulate them into doing it. And more importantly, that when you're dealing with something very stressful, you just push it all down and you go into timeout. And then afterwards, when you leave timeout, you say whatever you need to say, to get on the good side of your parents so that you can get back into it. It's like a relationship of manipulation. That's how I kind of think about the work that you're doing in context is that all this is part of the evolution of understanding the brain and how the brain wires and fires. Exactly. And so we want to start to move beyond behavior to what's actually driving that behavior. A lot of times it's a stress state. It's a threat state that's happening in your nervous system where you've gone beyond the tools that you have at that moment to cope well 
and into that survival place where you're either aggressive and fighting or you are so stressed that you're wanting to run away or just resist a situation or overwhelmed and paralyzed. You're, you're frozen, right? And so I like what you said too about time out. It's really important to note that another thing time out does is it shows that if you're honest about being upset, you're angry, or whatever caused you to be in time out, I'm going to banish you away. Your feelings are not welcomed here. And you'll be isolated and rejected. So it's kind of, think of dumping out the pieces of a puzzle. To put your puzzle together and know where you want to go, you have to know what pieces are here first. To me, under the behavior, again, it's those thoughts, it's feelings, and it's really what's happening in your body. This is why I actually do a, a project with a lot of my kids, which is we make a body feeling map. So we sit and reflect on different feelings and where you feel them in the body. I love this. Yeah. I'd love <laughs> you to explain this because I think this is helpful for adults because so many people don't, as adults, don't even know where their feelings are lined up in their body. Right. And what this does is it welcomes big feelings and it also helps develop insight, your ability to look inside and notice what's happening. That's step one to recognizing what do I do to comfort or soothe myself or address a, a problem or a situation. So what we do is we lay out a huge piece of butcher paper or you can do it on just a white piece of paper where you make an outline of a body, but we make it fun. So we trace the child's body and then we sit together in our safe space where I hold space for things to just be what they are. It's not good. It's not bad. And you're never in trouble here. We start to explore. Okay. Think of a sad moment that's happened. We all feel sadness. Doesn't make you weak. Where do you feel it in your body when you bring that memory up? And so they'll know, oh, it's in my, my tummy. So they take a marker and they make a little symbol for whatever that sadness feels like to them. And we keep moving along. Think of a time that you felt angry. We all feel angry. We feel angry when something's happening that we don't like or when we don't feel safe or someone's not seeing us or hearing us when we really want them to see us. That's when we feel angry. So think of a time and where do you feel it in your body? Oh, I feel it in my shoulders. It's really tense. Good way to notice that. Draw it on your map. And by the end of going through different emotions and noting how they happen in your body, we have this beautiful map to guide that child through tough moments that doesn't necessarily rely on language, right? It's not about talking about big feelings. It's about feeling big feelings. And that is how we teach our body and our mind to be able to handle more stress without shifting into the survival state. It's getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Versus just reacting, which is not only something that kids do, but adults do it too. I think we need to do this tracing paper workshop for adults <laughs> and there would be a hit and take it on the road. But that's exactly it. So for any adult, parent or not, it's so helpful to take time to just reflect in a safe space yourself on were you seen and cared for 
as a child? Were you in a safe environment that was also contained? And when I say contained, I mean having boundaries where a parent took care of you, uh, fed you, kept you on some sort of sleep regimen, showed that there are rules and structure. Because without that, children feel anxious. It makes them feel like they have to be the parent of themselves if it doesn't seem like someone's taking care of them. Because remember, they can't feed themselves. They can't take care of themselves. They can't keep themselves safe all the time. So they do need a parent to feel safe. But it's important to reflect on that and then to move into, did someone help teach you how to soothe and comfort yourself when things were really stressful? Now, if the answer is no in any one of those areas, it will impact your own threat states as you move through life. Think of it as the toolbox that got built when you were younger through those three SCs of developing security. And now, as an adult, when you're in a different context that's not your parent-child relationship, is it time to update your toolbox? That's a beautiful way to say it. Is it time to update your toolbox? And and part of that, both for kids, but again, it's relevant for adults, is we were talking about time out. You have this concept called time in. And what does that look like? And how can a parent create a space for their child to go to? Well, I'll let you describe it. Tell us about what time in is. So time in is the opposite of time out. You're not being banished away and you're not trying to fight or run away from these big feelings or scary thoughts that arise. Instead, you're holding a safe space for your child, for yourself, to experience the things that don't feel good. Remember, our nervous system, when it's too stressed, can't tell the difference between perceived danger and real danger and your brainstem gets activated and those four F's of survival might start happening. Now, if there's not real danger, that's not really a constructive response for handling a situation or regulating yourself. So time in is about creating safe space to be honest about what's happening inside even if it means your child is upset with you, helping them feel seen and to see their own feelings inside and helping guide them towards soothing and comforting tools. And this is actually a space that you recommend that parents create in their house. Yeah, so what I like to recommend is that parents set up some part of the house to have this time in space. And what you would do is designate it a, you're not in trouble. This is a safe place for big feelings that happen. Big feelings are welcome, but we want to be able to handle them in a constructive way. One that doesn't push people away. You're not um, aggressive with them. And so in this time in space, what I recommend is having sensory items, like something to squish, because that releases that angry, aggressive energy or nervous energy that happens in our body. Remember, a threat- And like creates a state of like the child getting back into the body. Right, and guides them back in, right? Threat states are tense. So when you give them something to squish, it helps release that tension. 
And then something to smell that feels pleasant because that helps activate different parts of your brain that are not related to your survival response. So you start to shift the way that the energy flows through your body and through your brain. Um, you can have books that feel really comforting and soothing. Like a favorite book or something like that. A favorite book. There are some cute ones like The Invisible String, which is a book about feeling loved, right? You can have paper and pencils or markers or crayons there so that they can color. Because again, feelings aren't about words. There's something you feel. So sometimes the feelings actually don't have words. And when someone, especially a child, is really, really upset, they're not able to access the talking parts of their brain. They just need time to regulate a bit. That's why, too, when you see, you know, tantruming happening, a child's not in a place to be able to have a conversation you can't or learn. reason with a child when they're in that space. It's like that part of their brain is just shut off. Right. In that moment, it's about showing them that I see you're having a hard time. I care. It matters to me. And I'm here to help you soothe. Yeah. Right. So in that way, you almost become their emotion coach. They need a coach in these difficult times. You know, another big factor in this is shame. So children are wired and designed to feel shame. And shame is that really awful feeling that happens inside, in your body, and in your awareness, where thoughts of, am I good enough? Am I lovable? Do I have self-worth? Start to come into play. Right now, the reason children have shame is because they need you as the parent to survive. It's built into our DNA. Yeah. So when kids act out or they seem weak, and maybe it's easier to think about this in terms of animals, actually. So if you have a pack of deer and there's a little deer who's sick or weak or struggling or unruly and acting out in some way and requires a lot of attention to be drawn to it, what ends up happening? They would leave it behind. Yeah, that's nature. So that one gets left behind. Now, this is partially why children don't want to appear weak. They don't want to appear flawed and they really are sensitive to when you're upset with them because if you leave them, you abandon them, right? Or you reject them or don't love them anymore, they don't survive. So that, There's that fear of being ostracized from the community baked into our DNA. Right. Shame is the feeling that fills you up and tries to motivate you to do something to get back into good grace and to be liked and loved and cared for and kept. Now, it's natural, but when it goes unchecked, and that's partially due to how we were cared for when we were younger, right? How we were seen or how safe it felt or whether someone taught us to soothe and comfort ourselves. Well, that has a huge impact on how shame rules our life or doesn't. And it's, yeah, it starts to play into like work and you turn in a project and maybe you did your best and it was a good attempt, but your boss didn't like it or that. 
And now you turn that into shame because that was a survival mechanism you used as a kid and it's not serving you as an adult now. Exactly. And it's super important as a parent and as someone helping children develop resilience to recognize when it's happening and the role it plays so that you don't bring it into future relationships and let it rule your life. Now, part of that is having that compassion that we've been touching on to just welcome all the uncomfortable, all the difficult, all the stressful and work through it in a new way. That means being receptive rather than reactive, right? It's so key because I think in, in, again, when I look at the landscape of modern day parenting and I'm the first person to say, I don't have kids, I'm super, super involved in the lives of my nephews, nieces, cousins, et cetera, but it's nothing like actually going through it. And I can imagine being a parent, especially on top of that, a mother is, is one of the most beautiful and also challenging things out there. And there's so many nuances in every relationship. So that's the disclaimer for everybody listening out there. Um, when I look at the landscape of modern day parenting, you kind of see a couple of approaches. You see the sort of brute force parenting is the term that I'd use for suppress, right? Suppress it. This is not okay. This is not cool. You're being punished now for what you're going through and what that leads to as an adult. And sometimes you see the other side, which is parents who are like, I'm not going to be that parent to my child. I'm going to be there for them. I'm going to listen to everything. But then sometimes they don't have, they have two flexible boundaries, Listening doesn't mean that you give your child what they need or what they want in that situation or what they want. You may give them what they need, but they don't know that they need it. It may still mean that, no, we're not going to buy this thing for you. And I understand this is a very difficult time. And I understand that you're feeling these feelings and I see it and I'm no, and you know, I'm there for you using the languaging that you shared earlier. And no, we cannot buy this toy. And I can understand why that's painful or this or that, these other situations. And, and using those tools to really not, you know, parents always have this fear of like, oh, my kids are gonna walk all over me or they're gonna be spoiled or other stuff. And what you're talking about is not that. It's not given to every single whim. In fact, it's to have more stronger boundaries, but within those, be able to guide your children through the feelings that they're feeling that they don't know exactly how to process. Because the worst thing in the world is that, you know, going back to that saying, I don't know if it was, um, Marianne Williamson or book uh, Course in Miracles, but what you resist will persist. So if you teach your kid as a as a child to resist these things, to press them, it's gonna pop up in some other manifestation later on in life. Exactly, and it's like we were saying, boundaries are really important because it helps a child feel safe, like someone's watching over them. There are limits, and someone's making sure that they stay alive and stay safe. So boundaries are super important but it's about being present in those moments. And in fact, parenting is about being present, not perfect. Life is not perfect. There are gonna be moments where you as a parent, like your best self didn't show up. And so what do you actually do? Because we'll all have those moments. You take some time, you walk yourself through it, you comfort yourself. And then later when everyone's settled down, you reflect with your child about what happened and you say sorry. It role models that you can make a mistake and you can honor how someone else probably felt in that moment. Say sorry. Talk about what you would rather do next time, how you'd rather handle it. 
and show them that like mom and dad is a human being right that they can they also go through this too in a way it's actually really beautiful because parents what what i always you know another insight that i has had as a kid was i wish i could just have more of a friendship relationship with my parent right and not be just seen through the aisles of like a parent who's a dominant and a child who's like the subordinate how can i have a little bit more of like an equal how would you if your friend made this mistake how would you talk to them? And that's part of it is parents also going through situations. Okay, I flipped out a little bit. I got reactive. You know, it's been a tough week. It's a tough week at work. I have so much things going on and here you are asking about this stuff. It wasn't cool. I apologize. I want to be better next time. And you take the child on the journey. So that's exactly right. Intention becomes super important to growing, both for our children and us as parents. Maybe we didn't show up that time how we wanted to, but when you sit and reflect on what happened, what threat state you were in, and give yourself compassion, because you know what? That response probably got you through some really hard times in your past, in your own relationships or context, but may not be so helpful now. So give yourself that moment of kindness, take a breath, Choose to reset and actually imagine yourself going through that same situation with your child, but doing it differently. And what happens is that you prime your brain to be able to do that next time that situation arises. I love that. And it reminds me a little bit of the work of like uh, uh, relationship therapist John Gottman and the work of the Gottman Institute. I've talked about him a couple times in this podcast before, but his work in relationships has just been so fundamental for me for not just relationships, but just all communication. And a story that I think about that's related to the work that you do here is that uh, Dr. Gottman, who has a science-based approach to uh, marital therapy, he wrote an article and uh, eventually a book on these idea on this idea of the four henchmen of the apocalypse. He was made famous or more well-known than he was because he was featured in this book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And inside there, he came up with this process where he would see a 90-minute, sorry, a 90-second clip of a couple arguing, and he could tell the likelihood predictively of their ability to get divorced within a matter of like five to 10 years. I might be butchering some of those numbers, but that's the basic premise. You can look in the book Blink and see it. And the way he did it is he would look for these patterns of what he called the four henchmen of the apocalypse. And one of them that I feel is so related to how kids handle stress and and big feelings in life and self-soothe is he looked for the frequency of something that he called stonewalling in the conversation. And stonewalling goes back to this idea of freezing, that he would get a couple who had been married for a little while to say, talk about a challenging time in your past relationship. You know, it's already done. It's been over something like that, right? Or you think it's done and it's in the past. And through that, it would bring up all this sort of still resentments or components inside of there. And one partner or both might respond to the situation by completely shutting down. So stonewalling is the idea of completely shutting down in communication because you don't know how to handle those feelings that are there. And I always think about where does that develop? And it's clear that it like all those things are survival tools and mechanisms that we learn as kids. And if we aren't taught a different approach, we just take that into future 
relationships, friendships, other stuff, and behaviors inside of the marriages that we have in the in the future. So when I heard him telling the story in the four henchmen of the apocalypse, you can look it up. It's a cool article on Huffington Post. It's so amazing to see. And he has videos uh, of couples who are in this conversation talking about a differently, different, uh, difficult challenge or circumstance in the past. And then one partner just completely crosses their arms and refuses to participate and shuts down. And really what they're saying is that it's too much to deal with right now. And I need to like shut down. And they probably were taught or had to do that as a kid. Exactly. And if you think about, you know, shutting down and how adaptive it can be, think about depression. Mm. If you break that word down, de and press, the roots actually mean to push down. You're pushing things outside of your awareness that are too overwhelming, too painful, too uncomfortable. And it may not be within your awareness, but it's still in your memory and your body. It may not be explicitly memorable, but there are things that are implicit memory, which means you can't recall them in words, but they arise in sensations and perceptions as you move through life. Now, we want to be able to open ourselves up to work through those so that they don't keep those adaptive strategies that aren't so helpful now don't keep popping up and ruling our life. We want to update our toolbox, right? So the opposite of depression is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, with sitting in a safe space now and bringing up all those painful experiences while building new tools. This is an incredible process of especially trauma resolution called cortical consolidation. When you take a memory and bring it into present experience and process it or relate to it in a new way, you store it differently with a new uh, pattern neurologically. You're reteaching your brain how to wire by sort of pulling and unplugging the way that it was wired before and setting a new way that it fires and wires now. Exactly, and you do that through the power of your mind. This is the power of mindfulness, really. Mindfulness to me means being open and here in moment-to-moment experience without judging it, without calling it good or bad, right or wrong. It just is. You're being open, you're welcoming the painful and the pleasant, and you're being in this exact moment. So, you know, in our world today, mindfulness has become a little bit trendy, I think. Which and is also good. There's goods with it. Absolutely. And, you know, just like there's good, there's people who kind of hear that word and they're like, okay, it's not for me. Yeah. Well, they don't know what it means exactly. Exactly. But mindfulness just means being here for all of it. Not changing it, not fighting, and not running away from unpleasant experience. But instead showing up in a brave and strong way to work through whatever's going on. This is a really big thing that I teach my kids, is that strong doesn't mean nothing bothers me, nothing hurts me. Strong really means I can handle whatever comes my way. I've got the tools and I help them build the tools in our therapy process, and you as a parent can help them build the tools. 
I've got the tools to handle these hard moments. That's how we work towards resilience. I love it. It's uh, It really comes back to being present as a parent, which is a lifelong, whether you're a parent or not, just being present, just thinking about the last few interviews that we've done with Shelly Lefko and Peter Crone, and a big part of it is like being present with what we're feeling, being present in the situation, and then teaching our kids that from the beginning. And there's a financial coach uh, who's written a lot, has a really great podcast, his name is Dave Ramsey. I became aware of his work back when I was in um, end of high school going into college. And he has this term when it comes to uh, financial health. And he says that, you know, you're putting in attention on it now because you do it and you set it up the right way. You're forever changing your family tree. So regardless of whoever's listening and whatever you went through as a child and how you feel you were parented or not parented, the beautiful thing about it now is putting attention on it. You can completely change the family tree moving forward from here. Exactly. And just becoming aware of your own threat states will be so helpful. Now, when you notice yourself in your body where you're tense, you your heart's beating harder, it's harder to breathe, you find yourself feeling angry and aggressive, right? Or just overwhelmed and anxious, the biggest key to remember is just pause. Take one moment to get grounded. If you think about the phrase getting grounded, feel your feet on the floor. Take that one deep, slow breath, and it will shift how the energy flows through you. In fact, that is how we shift out of a reactive state back into a receptive state. Receptive means being open to the moment. So if you think of it that way, even when you're having a hard time, just by pausing and naming the feeling that's happening inside brings you into the receptive state. You're welcoming this hard moment. And that changes everything. So the power of pause is something I teach all my kids, especially if you're feeling angry, confused, or overwhelmed. Pause. And here's kind of a cute little takeaway practice that I teach the parents I work with. The STOP practice. It's an acronym. So in a hard moment, S is stop. T is take a breath. Or two. Or ten. However many you need to help relax your body. Get grounded. O is observe. Go inwards. What's happening? Can you give it a name? Can you just call it a stressful moment? P is proceed. From here, you've created that pause to be able to shift from being reactive to choosing a response. That's how we help our kids grow too. On top of the no that we wanna give them around whatever just happened. No, that wasn't okay, that's not how we do it. You can't speak to me that way. They actually need that second piece, which is in the future, when you're feeling upset, here's a better way to handle it. Here's how you can talk to me, right? They don't know. They have minimal life experience and sometimes it's hard to remember that. And it's part of being their emotion coach is recognizing when it's a hard moment that there's something happening under the bad behavior and that they need help getting on a different track. They need that guidance. So the stop practice is a beautiful way to take just a moment even for yourself 
to try to shift back into a receptive state. I mean, I know a lot of adults that could benefit from the same thing, pretty much every single one. So whether you're a parent with a kid or whether you're just an adult listening to this conversation, can you just repeat those one more time? So S is stop, T is take a breath, O is observe and notice what's going on in the body and where those feelings might be. And, and P is... Proceed. Proceed, deciding intentionally how you want to move forward from here. Exactly. Just the pause and the stop in this case gives you the power to choose. And this is how I frame it with my kids that I work with. Between something happening and you responding, there's a space in there, right? And we want to be able to tap into that so that we choose. And in that space is your ability to recognize that you're in a threat state. Something is probably feeling too stressful, too overwhelming, scary, or painful. So when we learn how to do practices like this, and this is the power of meditation, of mindfulness, it helps build up those neural pathways that help us shift back into receptivity. What we do is we teach our mind and body to reframe fear and stress. So instead of fear standing for forget everything and run, survival, we teach fear to be more of a face everything and rise situation. And that's resilience. Well, what I just had this insight on is that resilience is, is really exactly what you said is that space between the initial situation and then the decision on how to proceed further from there. And most people, including adults, are reactivity, so they skip over that space. And when you just tell your child to stop and you take them from zero to 100 without the journey in between, you don't tell them how to like look at that space and then choose consciously how to do that. Exactly, and remember, reactivity is great in that sense if you're in real danger. Right. But if this is a situation where we wanna help our child grow, it's about slowing it down and shifting back into a receptive state. Remember our SCs, helping them feel seen and cared for in a hard moment, safe and contained, where they can be honest about what was going on under that behavior and helping them soothe and comfort by finding new strategies and more effective ways of handling the situation next time. I think this work is just so important now because the honest truth is if you look at uh, anxiety levels worldwide, if you look at like life as a whole, we have life as a whole by all accounts in modern society, Western society especially, there are more moments for opportunity of stress. There's more things going on. There's more things that are intersecting each other. In fact, there's this uh, uh, these, this couple who I believe uh, were writers at the New York Times and wrote an article which eventually turned into a book and the book is called All Joy and No Fun. I think the subtitle is some version of like the truth about modern day parenting. And one of the things that they talk about is that parenting is headed towards and has become this thing because there's so many demands on parents and kids is that it's way less fun than it used to be in the past. And it's a lot of moments of deep joy and appreciation and beauty and this child that you brought into this earth. But because of the stressors and the circumstances of either schedule, 
input and input could be from TV, social media, media, uh, just the current state of where society is in life. Uh, there's just so much more pressure on being a child than there is before. So when that's the case, okay, that's happening. That's the life that we live in. There's a lot of beautiful aspects of that too. We need to have more tools in our toolbox to keep up with life where maybe again, 50 years ago, nobody was having this conversation. Well, maybe life was a little bit more simpler then. Not that there wasn't still big traumas, big T traumas, little T traumas. There's, there was always that there, but we need this conversation now more than ever because it seems that it's only headed in this direction of more stressors and more inputs that put additional pressures on both parents and children. Yeah. That's basically my monologue of why the world needs more of you and why I'm so excited we're having this conversation on the podcast today. Me too. I mean, we do. We live in a more stressful world that makes it harder to slow down and pause. So, of course, it's harder to build these tools. We live in a world, too, in a culture where slowing down or taking time off or relaxing or resetting your nervous system isn't exactly valued. We value busyness and achievement, and our kids are very stressed Part of resilience is helping them realize that it's okay to take risk, to try new things and not be good at it at first, to not achieve sometimes. You know, same for ourselves. And we think about community as being a huge resource in helping us grow and relax and become healthier. I think in the parenting situation, that's sometimes undervalued. We're so busy rushing our kids from activity to activity. But what about what about you? What about your connection and your need for people? You're busy supporting your child. Well, you need support too. Dina, this has been a fascinating conversation. As I've shared, I don't have kids, but I so look forward to having them one day. And I feel like these are the conversations that, you know, we need to be having uh, way before becoming parents or even while becoming, while being parents, or even if somebody doesn't want to be a parent at all, the, the how understanding or how our childhood affects us as adults is so important, so key. So thank you for being here, number one. Number two, for those folks that are listening that want to keep in touch, I know you're working on some special projects with Dr. Dan Siegel. I look forward to having you back on when those things launch and however they manifest. But how can people find you? How can they keep in touch with you and stay tuned on the future work and efforts that are coming out? So you could reach me through my website. And I have a practice here in Los Angeles where I work with kids and families. Uh, it's called Growing Garden LA, which is based off of that metaphor we talked about, about planting seeds and the garden and soil that helps them thrive. Um, and then I have an Instagram, which is just my name, Dina Margolin where you post great quotes and content and little tips for parents to kind of reframe thoughts and ideas and 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 continuing some of the conversations that we've uh, shared here. It's really great. So definitely check that out. So while we wait uh, for hopefully one day a book from your own words, any tools, tips for parents, uh, book recommendations that are out there that you found great that sort of pick up on some of these themes that we talked about in this interview? Yeah, so kind of a classic parenting book, in my opinion, and one of the most important is Parenting from the Inside Out by Dan Siegel and Mary Hartzell. It uh, 
includes a lot of what we went over today and goes into depth. And then also another really cool tool is the Enneagram, which basically looks at how early life experiences cause us to develop into different personality types. I recommend this to a lot of families I work with because what ends up happening is you'll see that different family members have different personalities and it gives you some really cool reflections on how to grow together to honor who each person uniquely is, but really connect in a deep way. And so Beatrice Chestnut wrote a great book on this. Amazing. Yeah. And I'll toss one in that came from recommendation from my older sister, Herschel. Uh, It's called Milton's Secret. It's a book by Eckhart Tolle that's a children's illustrated book Mm -hmm. that teaches kids about mindfulness and this child, Milton, and how he discovers the present moment and starts working it into his life, even in the face of like bullying and other things that he's dealing with. So that's another book that uh, is a great recommendation. But also for anyone who was listening and realized that they may have big T, little T trauma that they want to work through, any type of therapy and especially ones that include more somatic elements in your body, like... Um, You know, there's somatic therapy and then there's EMDR is another great option to work through trauma to seek out therapists or an attachment based therapist, for example, who will lead you through early life experiences and help you make sense of the tools that you have today, how they were shaped in the past and how to move forward through that. So that's important, too. Uh, That's great. And two podcast recommendations off of that. You can hear Dr. Dan Siegel's podcast on the Broken Brain podcast where we talk about mindfulness. So just look that up. And then off of what Dina shared about uh, somatic therapies and other interventions in modern integrative psychiatry, we have Dr. Omid Naeem, who was on the podcast previously, and we dive deep into that if you're looking for additional listening. Dina, you're amazing. Thank you for being here and sharing the work that you're doing with children to create a better world. So appreciate it. And I'm honored to have you as a friend. Oh, me too. Thank you for being part of my community. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.